back to Developmenter, your podcast for careers in tech. Each episode is a short interview focused on one or more careers in technology through the experience of our guests. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. Today's guest has pretty much held almost every technical role one can imagine in his career. Software engineer, engineering manager, general manager, VP of engineering, and now chief product officer. On that journey, he's worked across everything from search to analytics to natural language processing. And I'm pretty sure he even did a stint at NASA working on some pretty cool space stuff. Please welcome to the show, Nick Caldwell. Nick, great to have you. Thanks, Grant. Grant, I, uh, I really appreciate that intro. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. And th- thanks so much for joining us. Why don't we, you know, I've given a little bit of a teaser there. Why don't we just kick things off and, and have you give uh, a proper introduction to yourself on your career and perhaps some of your education, some of your background. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've been fortunate to patch together a a pretty fun uh, career. Um, I think I've been proactive about trying to do different things throughout, you know, I guess my 15 years. My current job is a chief product officer at Looker. Looker is a a business intelligence uh, company. And, you know, the unique thing about this is it's a a pre-IPO startup and I get to to do the product engineering and design all at once. Super fun. Before that, I was at Reddit trying to figure out how to monetize cat pictures. (laughs) One of the the, uh, (laughs) main things I did there, though, was... um, growing the engineering team really, really quickly. So grew it from uh, around 35 engineers up to around 170 over the course of about a year and a half, while wow. simultaneously redoing all the tech stack, setting up a new search system, re- redoing the way the front page worked, uh, just a, t- a ton of, uh, of stuff there. Uh, and before that, I was a general manager. And, you know, I was at Microsoft for, um, I would say, like, I've, maybe too long. But one great thing about working at a big company is I, I got to learn how to manage large numbers of, of people and I got to, to work across a multitude of, of product lines, culminating in a role at a group called Power BI, where I became the general manager. And that was fun because it was sort of an internal startup team. We, uh, we started with around 15 people and the goal of uh, making a SaaS-based BI product. And when we left, we were at like 300 people and we had five products and I think we were Microsoft's uh, fastest growing. Uh, business for that year. And then, yeah, before that, I did have a stint at NASA. I got to work on the <laughs> high energy solar spectral imager. And I, I think the most interesting thing about that is, um, you know, at NASA, they have redundancy. So the uh, the first version of that satellite blew up in space. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, yeah, it wasn't actually there for the, uh, uh, the launch. It, it actually launched several years after I left uh, NASA, but it's, it's up there orbiting the earth right now, uh, taking pictures of the sun. Wow. So you actually have like software and or hardware that you worked on that's in space right now. Yeah. Yeah. X-ray so spectrograph. Cool. X-ray spectrograph. That was my, <laughs> that was what I spent a couple of years working on. Now, did you go to school for that kind of stuff or, you know, so what was your education background? No, I, I've, from an early age, I mean, I, I think uh, around the age of 10, I kind of pivoted hard to, to, you know, for sure wanted to do computer science. Um, it was uh, uh, you know, a time in my life where, uh, you know, I, I lived in uh, PG County, Maryland, and I, uh, PG County, if you don't know, is kind of a suburb toward the southeast of, of D.C., uh, predominantly black. You know, I, I really was trying to think through ways that I could 
uh, to be to be frank, I wanted to to find ways to make a lot of money, and I'm not good at sports. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I can't I can't sing, I can't dance. I got into coding, and um, you know, my heroes became people like Bill Gates, who were you know phenomenally wealthy by producing software. John Carmack, who uh, created Doom. You know, I was just fascinated yeah. with him at the time, and I thought to myself, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn how to code, and this is gonna be my way to a, a much better life. Uh, so around the age of of ten, I was like, yeah, I'm going into computer science. And I, I reoriented most of what I spent my spare time on, my academic career and, and so forth on that. When I ended up at, uh, at NASA, I was building the uh, hardware controllers. Oh, wow. So uh, in, inside the, the satellite and built in, you know, uh, and building um, different systems that would interpret the, the data uh, for the satellite on the fly. But yeah, I mean, uh, I was very early on, like fascinated with computers and decided that was going to be the thing. Yeah, well, it's worked out well for you. I'm pretty sure you're the first guest I've had on who pivoted at 10. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Well, my, my earliest memories of, of hanging out with my dad are me sitting on his lap playing with a Tandy 1000. Um, you nice. know, so it's, it goes way back. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, and that kind of gets at one of the consistent themes I've had with all my guests is, is this notion of, of having some good mentors in your, in your life and your career. So it sounds like your, your dad was one of them. Any others that kind of come to mind who really helped shape the way you thought about, you know, your career? Yeah, I, I've been really fortunate throughout my career to have um, managers who, who just gave me great advice while simultaneously understood how driven I was. <laughs> you know, and I look back on my career, I was like, wow, I was really pushing hard. And I got lucky to have managers who kind of understood how ambitious I was at different, you know, of course, my, my father was kind of the inspiration. He used to, you know, say nerds and eggheads will rule the world someday, son. Uh, and I think he was right about that. But I mean, I think later on in my career, I very much remember uh, a conversation I had with a, a guy named Ravi Shahani, who he, uh, he basically taught me what it was to lead. And the context is that, you know, I, I was an engineering manager at this time, kind of a new engineering manager. I think I had about six months of experience under my belt. And I was really, really frustrated with, um, you know, the direction that the PM team was taking our organization. I, you know, I thought the roadmap was, was uninspired and, and that we weren't fully utilizing the skill sets that we had in the team. And I was just in, uh, in Ravi's office just complaining about this. And, uh, you know, he, he asked me to stop and he was like, Nick, you know, look, you're a really good manager but you suck as a leader. And I was like, wow. Uh, like, wow. What do you mean? He's like, yeah, look, you know, who do you think is responsible for this? You know, you're here complaining in my office, but like, what are you actually going to do about it? Like, who do you think is, re is responsible for this? And he said, leaders are people who take responsibility for what happens next. So, you know, after that meeting, I kind of walked out and I was like, uh, you know, 10 minutes later, I was in the general manager's office and I was like, hey, look, like, you know, there's a problem with the product roadmap. I see it. I think you see it. Why don't you give me an opportunity to, to participate in some of the planning process? And um, the outcome of that was the GM gave me uh, 15 heads, uh, gave me a, a oversight over engineering product and design for a small little prototyping team. And we, um, we jammed for three months and we ended up coming up with like a great new um, set of deliverables for, for the team. I think they executed on, our, on those plans for the next like two to three years. And uh, that was really the turning point. It is the moment in my career where I decided I wasn't just going to manage, I was going to lead.
Ah, very interesting. Yeah, that's perhaps a great segue. I mean, I, one of my earlier episodes, I, I talked with Camille Fournier, who maybe you know, has written a book called The Manager's Path. And and she's also made that similar leap to like what you were just describing at, at Microsoft. And as you think about that, how you progressed from, you know, moving from software engineer up into you know, director of engineering, VP of engineering, you know, reflect a little bit on some of the key lessons and feedback you got beyond that. What sounds like a really blunt and, and useful in hindsight conversation you had with Ravi there. Yeah, sure. I mean, every level that you get to require, it's, it's like a fundamental mental shift in how you, you think about your role. I think for me, the most challenging shift was that engineering manager to director shift. And I think that's honestly, that's when I, when I look at other folks' careers who I, who I mentor, that that's tends to be where people get stuck because when you're an EM, I, I think being a, a manager, the most fun that you're going to have in your management career is if you're like a line level engineering manager, you get to know every single person on your team. You get to build these like tight one-on-one relationships. So I remember for me, I went very, very far into my uh, management career, like just hyper optimizing on the types of stuff you do when you're an EM, like getting to know people personally, one-on-ones, pat them on the back, encourage them, you know, training, discipline, et cetera. When you become a director though, like you, you have to kind of step back from that a little bit. And, you know, I hate to say it, but like you, you can't do the one-on-one relationship stuff. You have to start managing people as a group and you have to start thinking about representing the company's interests more than you would necessarily represent the interests of any one individual. And that's like a really, really tough challenge. It was tough for me. And I, I think the the person who got me over that kind of bump was uh, a, a guy I ran into named uh, James Phillips. Uh, he was a mentor for me when I was in that director mode. And he used to always say, Nick, you've got to get off the floor. Like that's what he would say. <laughs> you know, huh. EMs and the ICs were on the floor and I was upper management. So I had to get off the floor and he wasn't, he wasn't uh, wrong. I mean, I, I appreciate that, you know, years later that as a director, it's really, really important to understand, you know, those one-on-one relationships and, and the values of being an EM. It's really important to remember what that was like, but you have to make decisions at a much higher level, like aggregate level decisions. And then I think by the time you're all the way into VP land, it becomes really tough in the sense that you're now like four levels removed from anyone actually like checking in code. Mm -hmm. And you have to be much, much better about clearly articulating what you want down into the organization. Cause it's a bit like a game of telephone. Like you may have in your head a specific idea, but by the time it reaches like the ground level, it will get, you know, warped into something that you didn't quite anticipate. So you have to get good at like being extreme clarity about, you know, what you want, translating that into an organizational structure, a set of missions, themes, and strategies that make sense and and can't be confused. I think that's that's still challenging me for for me today. I mean, I I think it's an art um, to try and continually evolve an organization, adjust its priorities, communicate them on a regular cadence is just generally a difficult thing that no one has perfected a system for. Well, especially as you're, you know, working in the Valley and high growth startups, right? I mean, you can tell, you know, these 10 people or even a hundred people that are here today, here's our plan and our clarity, right? And, and you could actually be spot on. And then, you know, 60 days later, you've added yeah. another 20 people or 30 people or, you know, whatever it is. And, and now not only has, 
things things happen in between, but then you know that telephone that you're talking about where it gets confused and lost in the message, and then you've got this time factor in as yeah. well. So, so I imagine you know a good part of what you need to do as you grow is putting in systems in place that allow you to also not only communicate out, but then gather back in information that helps you be informed about where you're at you know mm -hmm. so talk maybe a little bit about kind of what you've done as you've grown to make sure that you're you kind of have your finger on the pulse even though you can't do that day-to-day -day stuff that you were talking about as a as a line manager yeah you're totally correct i think um if you think about like what a line level team does you know the daily stand-ups or, or weekly team check-ins I think no one really is surprised if you look at like a line level team and you see those sorts of structures in place. It turns out you can replicate those those structures up through your organization. And I, I think that's where most people, particularly in the Bay Area, like they don't make that leap of insight that like you can have the same sort of regular check-ins at the director level. You can yeah. have the same sort of regular check-ins at the, at the at the exec level. And if you do that up and down the org chart, you you actually can stay pretty tight on the on the pulse of what's going on in an organization the challenge is that every level needs different granularity of information and communicating between the levels re require people uh, who have kind of the maturity to understand that every level needs a different type of information if that yeah. makes sense so you know for the last uh, I guess like six or seven years I've used a system where you know, you kind of start with like on Monday, you you tell your EMs, you know, hey, you're going to have your, your team meetings uh, and report up status. And then sometime late Monday, that'll get rolled up to uh, the directors and they'll kind of report status on major projects with less granularity, more focus on like the overall OKRs and, and strategy. And then maybe the day after that'll get rolled up to the exec team with just a super high level, like, hey, CEO, like this major project's an on track or off track, et cetera, et cetera. And you just rev on that once a week. That same sort of heartbeat drives the organization and lets you know, like, how things are, are going. And then you can adjust and, re, re, you know, move resources around or change priorities as necessary. And then maybe every quarter, you have kind of a, a, a bigger quarterly plan where, you know, you, you step back and think a little bit more strategically and readjust resources, maybe do a reorg, et cetera. And then popping up a, a level, you do that once a, a year as well, like just for the whole company, like what should we all be, be focusing on? Right. So I, I think like really the, the key thing is you have to, at every level of the organization, have some sort of rhythm and some sort of understanding of, of what it means to check the health of the organization. And you have to have some discipline about repeating that. Yeah, and that's often hard in a, in a fast-growing early-stage company as well, right? Because you don't want to put in too many processes, but you, you still need to understand, are we on track or not? Exactly. It's, it's really tough when you're trying to transition from um, the, the small company. Like any, a company under 20 people doesn't really need a lot of, of yeah. structure. The, the roadmap is largely dic dictated by whoever your loudest customer is. <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's as you try and scale and make this stuff reproducible, you start bringing in managers, you start bringing in directors, it becomes important to have a roadmap because you need some sort of basis for communication across the organization. It's when those sorts of communications and, uh, and predictability requirements come in that you have to start thinking more about process, but you, you never want to add more process than, than what is strictly needed. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, any, anytime I come into a, a new uh, organization. I, I spend a lot of time 
kind of playing detective and figuring out, you know, what, what process is actually necessary to solve, you know, the problems of the day, rather than showing up and saying, hey, uh, this is my 10th team that I've run. Here's all the playbooks. Uh, yeah. I think every team is just different. And, you know, you may have 10 different plays in your playbook, but, you know, every situation is different. I like to spend some time listening and diagnosing. That makes sense. And, and you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, looking at your background, you, you, you you've gone from big company to startup. And I imagine there was a fair number of things that you were probably used to in the big company land, just the infrastructure that exists in a place like Microsoft, and then going to a startup like Reddit and then on to Looker. You know, what, what, what do you like about both of those situations? You know, one of the questions, you know, around development or is like, hey, should I go work for a startup? Should I go work for a big company? You know, kind of walk me through a little bit the pros and cons in your mind of, of making that transition and, and what yeah. you liked about both. Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to each. I, I think with a big company, the, the biggest pro for me from a career perspective is uh, you learn how to manage large groups of people. And this is something that if you come to the, the Bay Area and you start looking at a lot of startups, even even big companies out here haven't really gotten good at this. Like I, rem I was at Facebook a couple months back and I, I remember a guy told me, Nick, like even at Facebook, the company has scaled faster than our ability for managers to learn how to manage. And that was really insightful to me. Like when I was at Microsoft, gigantic company, like there's so much emphasis on management tools and, and repeatable management processes that I just assumed everyone like picked this stuff up. Uh, but then when I got to the Bay Area and it was like, oh my God, you've managed more than, you know, 50 people, like tell us the tools and processes. And I would just kind of say like, hey, the basic things I've been doing for years. And it was, it was like amazing to see how much that was, was needed. So I, I think from a, uh, what I really got out of a big company was those sorts of systematic ways to manage large groups of people against predictable uh, schedules. But I also learned, I, I would say the hard way, like the, the biggest disadvantage, if you're someone like me who's also entrepreneurial. So I spent most of yeah. my career at Microsoft doing inter what would be considered like internal startup teams, like trying to take new technologies and figure out how to apply them to uh, existing tech or building new products all up. And the last one I did was, was Power BI. And Power BI was like a, a smashing success afterwards, which I realized that uh, equity is important, <laughs> like ownership is important. <laughs> so, you know, you have to kind of play the yeah. game theory through of, of like, what happens if your entrepreneurial startup is actually successful? Um, well, if it's unsuccessful, there's a lot, you've just de-risked yourself. Like you can always just go and do some other yeah. thing inside that big company. But if it's actually successful, you've given up like a ton of the upside, which was kind of an important insight um, that I took away <laughs> from doing that Power BI stuff. I had a you great mean, time. You didn't get a cut of all revenue? Is that what yeah, you exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's like big companies like fundamentally, if you're of the mindset of creating net new products, you should probably not be at a big company. Like you can yeah. be, you, you manage your career at a big company by like really learning how to manage more and more people or maintain existing businesses. It's, it's really rare that you go to a big company with the intent of like, I'm going to have a small number of people do a startup and then like expand the business as a whole, because you know, the right. fundamental thing about being at a big company is I already have multiple gigantic businesses. They don't necessarily need you to come in and, and, and play the innovator or, or, or revolutionize anything. Uh, yeah. If anything, they want their core businesses to, to remain stable and continue growing. So anyway, I mean, like at a, a startup though, like it's the 
exact opposite of that. Uh, you know, the last, um, you know, I was at Reddit, it was very, very much like, we got to grow, we got to figure out how to scale, we need the systems and processes in place quickly, we don't care what we have to change, and we're going to throw money at the problem. I mean, it's very much, I would say, more skin in the game, more, yeah. more of a survival mentality, more hunger for, for growth in a, in a startup. And um, I think that correspondingly, like, you know, you build up more sweat equity. So if things work out, you get rewarded uh, more proportionally in, in my view. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you, I'll ask you the, the, you've managed more than 50 people. What's your secret? You know, Power BI, I guess we got that up to like 300. The, honestly, the, the trick of managing large numbers of people is uh, uh, imagine you're building a house, you build the framing first. Uh, if you're building a large engineering team, your, your framing is your uh, management and uh, architect structure. So, you know, when I was uh, landed at Reddit and they asked me to to grow that team really quickly, the first thing I did, because I knew how big they wanted the organization to be, we had to go from 30 to, you know, the original ask was up to 150. And then we ended up going a little bigger than that. Wow. Um, you, you frame out your house like, you know, that means like, what is the org structure that you want to build? What are the major product areas? And then within that, like how many directors do you need? I went after hiring the directors first. If you hire good directors who are experienced and, you know, they will know how to build organizations themselves. So I got the directors first. Those directors then brought in managers to put in uh, under them or promoted managers from within the company. Uh, and then, um, and then we fill in the, uh, uh, ICs, uh, as needed, but building an organization, you know, start with the framing, you know, you frame around, um, the major product areas and then you start filling in, you know, key roles and key positions. Makes sense. You know, you've traditionally been, you know, in this engineering, fairly technical roles. And, and then now these days you're, you're playing this product role. You know, what's, what's been the key shift for you mentally to go from, Hey, I'm running in engineering, which, you know, at the end of the day often is like, make sure the trains are on time to now being in a product role, which I often, you know, it's like, okay, which way should the train go? Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a really good way to, uh, to summarize it. Yeah, no, I, I think when you're an engineering manager, like, you know, I like to say like that your job titles tells you what you need to do. You're managing engineers and managing engineers means trying to, to, to figure out how to ship software and some predictable schedule with some expected quality level. And I think the challenge as an engineering manager or engineering director is like you're managing larger and larger pools of engineers and that has its own challenges. In product, you're, um, you know, PM teams are generally not that big. You know, you're not, you know, the challenge is not necessarily managing large numbers of, uh, of, of reports, but there are large numbers of stakeholders you have to consider, perhaps right. even larger numbers. So now you're thinking about a large pool of external customers. You're thinking about how to interact with the sales team, the marketing team, the legal team. Uh, and none of these people report to you. <laughs> so uh, so you, it's much, much more about stakeholder management, roadmap clarity, um, synthesizing all those different signal, signals into some sort of uh, strategic plan that you can then you know, deliver into engineering so that hopefully you can, uh, you know, get stuff built. So I, I think the fundamental difference is, you know, in product, all your stakeholders are uh, not reporting to you. Um, <laughs> and yeah. you have to be, because you have to, a dependency on engineering, it's really, really important to be able to communicate the vision and importance of the asks so that engineers can be motivated and, and, and build um, toward your, uh, your, your goals. Yeah, I, I would imagine, you know, your 
you know, obviously at the end of the day, you're dictating, you're not dictating, but you're, you're setting forth the, the uh, product roadmap, but, but then there's a whole bunch of selling that kind of goes into it as well. And, and obviously having that engineering background, I would assume also buys you some cred with the engineers. Yeah. I mean, it, it helps. I think I like to get into the details and I, I think um, I'm probably a little bit more in general comfortable like having a, a a deep a deeply detailed conversation with the with the engineering team I, I think the nice thing about engineering it's like you can get to concrete answers <laughs> like you know you know I've always believed as a as a coder that like you know if you, if you think about the problem long enough you you know code can solve anything whereas with product there's often not a a concrete answer answer like you, you often have to make some sort of strategic uh, judgment you use all sorts of different tools to to try and make sure you're you're headed the right path but it's not always as as clear of a uh, of an answer yeah and uh and then you have to kind of admit that there's lack of clarity and and be able to communicate the excitement around the the vision regardless and i think that can be a challenge in and of itself yeah well and, you know you somewhat you have to say you know here's vision Right. And, and we, you know, we're going to go do things like, like test it with focus groups and users. And perhaps we can roll out things and give feedback from, you know, certain customers who are you're, you're particularly close to, but, at, but at the end of the day, you kind of need to say, you know what, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And, this is what we believe, you know? Yeah. This is what we believe. And, and we'll, we'll try to iterate as quickly as possible, but we, we might be wrong on some things. Yeah. No. And I, and I think that, um, Trying to come up with those beliefs, I, I think um, one approach that I have always tried to incorporate is to make sure that uh, the engineering team and the design team uh, are in the same room with PM as those beliefs are, are fleshed out. Like, I think one thing I try and avoid is like PMs go off in isolation and then show up with a fully detailed roadmap and say, surprise engineers, this is what we're going to build. I, I think that really can be frustrating and it, it, it treats the eng team more like they're factory workers than artisans yeah and, uh, i like to like to get everyone involved i do think that you have to acknowledge that every discipline is going to have a different viewpoint and that pm of course is going to have much more of a understanding of the external market and, and so forth but some of the best ideas uh you know generally come from the the eng or, or design org as well and you want to make sure that those are incorporated you definitely want to incorporate them when it comes to to things like being aware of tech debt uh and making sure that those get addressed in your roadmap yeah especially because that's you know like product manager you're kind of always thinking hey new features new features new features or new capabilities or new solutions and and, and sometimes it's like, you know what, now we, we need to make sure we're actually on solid foundation for, for the future first. And so yeah. they need to address some tech debt. That, that's always a difficult choice. Yeah, it, it can be. And I think that's why you have to have everyone in the room when you're coming up with the, with the costing. Like yeah. eventually tech debt, uh, you know, particularly in a, in a world where uh, like UX, UI frameworks seem to change every two months. Uh, it can, it can add every up. Week, you mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't even know what the latest one is. What are we on? We're on Vue now instead of React. I don't know what the latest and greatest is. Well, uh, and now you have a new AI library every week too. So uh, between yeah. AI and UI frameworks, it, how anybody gets anything done in the Valley these days, I just don't know. <laughs> it's incredibly exciting times, but yeah. I, you know, I, I think it can add up and, um, 
you know, it, it makes it a challenge, you know, on Eng when you're trying to hire new engineers who have been trained on a framework from six months ago when your core team was trained on the framework for two years ago. Yeah. Um, you got to figure out some way to, <laughs> to keep yeah. everyone kind of locked on the same page and have a strategy around that. Yeah, we're, we're going, we're, my current place, we're going through the same kind of thing too, of like, hey, you know, we needed to grow. Uh, we were growing fast. And, and so we put off some of those things because we, we needed uh, adoption and, and we got that. And then but now it's like, okay, now we need to pay down some of that debt. Uh, you know, the last question, kind of thinking about your career, and then I want to spend a little bit of time looking forward. Uh, you know, so this is your first role with the, the chief in the title if you will, you know, you're in the, in the C-suite now and, and perhaps at, at that next level in an organization, how do you, how has your, your perspective changed on your career and, and your approach to things now that you're, you know, you've got that, that C-level title, if you will. One, one fundamental thing that is, is true is like when you have C in front of your title, I am far less involved in the day-to-day -day operations than I was even at the VP level, which has been surprising to me, um, you know, because uh, I'm used to, to kind of being in there and like figuring out how to uh, set up new systems and new operational meetings and things like that. And now I have to depend on my next level down to do all of that stuff for me. I'm really, you know, so my, my VP of Eng comes to me and tells, tells me, you know, here's how we're going to structure our weekly check-ins. Here's how we're going to, you know, uh, structure the quarterly reviews. And, and previously I had been really leaning into that. You know, my strength really is coming in and scaling and installing all of those uh, operational uh, things that you need to grow a startup. So now I'm in a C-suite. I spend a lot of my time on strategy and mm -hmm. looking out into the market, meeting customers, meeting with our PMM team and our sales organization. And I think that the, the systems that I build now are much more about connecting the different elements of the, the company together to, to best inform what we want to build and the types of organization that we need to build on, on product and engineering. So I think, I think like my, my peer group and where I spend my time is actually either horizontal or, or outward much more than, than I'd expected. And it's, it's mm. been, it's been fun to learn that. Okay. I'll leave there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think, uh, you know, especially that I come from engineering background too. And then I started doing more and more sales things and customer facing things. And it was just, first off, I was just exhausted. Right? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how these salespeople go out and meet with these people all day long. But then once you kind of got your feet under you, it was like, it's, it's super invigorating, right? Because now all of a sudden you're getting firsthand feedback from people. And, and I often tell engineers as they want to grow in their career is like, get that feedback from people who actually use your product, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it'll make you such a better engineer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I wish I had learned that earlier in my career. It took me way too long to realize as an engineer that there's other disciplines involved in producing products. I, I, you know, at, so at, at, at Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft's a gigantic organization and like the sales and marketing functions, you can go quite a long time, you know, with your career as an engineer at Microsoft without ever meeting a sales or a marketing person. That's just like a machine that exists on a different planet because the, yeah. the company's so big. You know, when I got, you know, I would say into my sixth or seventh year was the first time I, I got to spend a lot of time with the other disciplines, sales, marketing. And, and I, had, I got the biggest insight from uh, someone who was on the legal team. I met someone from Microsoft Legal. They were in a four-person team who were responsible for pursuing patent infringement uh, cases against Android. 
So this four-person team had uh, got it so that, you know, every Android device sold, Microsoft got a cut of the revenue. Like they were, you know, responsible for billions of dollars in Microsoft revenue, just being a four-person patent team. And to me, that was like, just mind blowing. I was like, wow, like, you know, no code involved yet. You know, <laughs> ma massive, uh, <laughs> massive uh, contribution uh, to the, to the, to the company. Uh, and I started just legal to... code for uh, <laughs> yeah, legal code. Sorry. I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah, no, but it, but it was like really eye opening to me. And I, I think, um, you know, if you're a, a brand new uh, engineer, as early as you can, start to learn about other disciplines and how they contribute because it'll pay on, pay off later on uh, in your career as you try and um, take on roles that have broader scope. And then certainly if you want to become a general manager or, or get into executive leadership, those other disciplines become your peers and coworkers and you really yeah. got to understand their day to day. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. And perhaps as you already answered my final question, but one more before that, you know, as you look forward about, you know, around this being chief product officer or being in product management, what do you see as the big opportunities and challenges ahead for you in your career? The thing I'm most excited about here at Looker, and this might be too Looker specific, but it is what I'm excited about. Uh, we have an opportunity to be uh, at the cutting edge of, of what I would say is the next generation of business intelligence. You know, similar to when I was at, at Microsoft uh, and doing Power BI, like the idea there was that we were going to take an on-premise uh, BI system and be the first to market with a SaaS-based BI system. And we spent all of our energy trying to take that on-prem stuff and put it into the cloud, and it was a smashing home run. I, I think what's happening now in the data space is there's another set of fundamental transitions occurring. One, more and more in mid-market and enterprise, you're seeing like this proliferation of SaaS applications. There is like a SaaS application for any possible problem uh, that you might want. And then, and then this means that there's more and more data silos being created. Yeah. So from a BI perspective, if you believe that connecting data together makes it more valuable, well, now we have a problem. It's like enterprises want more and more SaaS apps. We're creating more silos and it's getting harder and harder to connect all this data and relate it in an interesting way. Second thing that's happening is uh, a trend toward uh, massively parallel data warehouses. You know, when I went to Reddit, it was just mind boggling to me how powerful something like BigQuery is. You can just dump all your data in there and um, you can do transformation on the fly. You no longer need to do ETL, you can do ELT. And this massively reduces the amount of time your data engineering team needs to spend doing like airflow jobs and data processing jobs. You can just put all this stuff in your data warehouse and do transformation uh, while you're doing querying. And then the final trend is um, everyone needs to use data uh, in their job now. Like I think five years ago, this would be, you know, like, oh, like we're yeah. going to create a data culture. And I think over time what's happened is data culture is becoming kind of a hokey thing because everyone just needs to use data. It's just assumed that like you know, everyone, yeah, everyone from the analyst to your factory floor worker is interacting with your data systems in one way or another. So um, data culture has already arrived. But what's different is the expectations of the user interfaces are they have to be very, very easy to use. You're seeing like natural language interfaces popping up. You're seeing tons and tons of line of business uh, applications that are being created to solve specific problems. And less and less you're seeing like, hey, put all the power into a dashboard and make everyone be a dashboard analyst. I think you're seeing less yeah. of that and more of like, you know, bring data 
and experiences to people in the tools that they're already using. And I think like Looker, you know, because of the way we're architected, using massively parallel data stores, being able to do the ETL and ops for people, I think we're at the front uh, front end of an emerging trend that is going to lead uh, to more people empowered with uh, with data, and then just fundamentally a change in how people think about business intelligence, and and we can be the first through the gate on that. Yeah, wow, that's great. So, last question then, Nick, as as we wrap up, as you look back on your career, you know, what piece of advice would you give our listeners if they wanted to follow a similar path? I think that the the I know I think I've dropped a couple pieces of advice. Yeah, around, but, no, you've had a that, lot packed in there, but you know maybe. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll wrap it up. There's one that um, would have been super relevant to me early in my career, um, which is that you can't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, comfort is the enemy of progress. So, you know, people ask me why I spent so long at, uh, at Microsoft. I was there for, for 13 years. And if you dig into that a little bit more deeply, I was at, um, uh, in, a, in a team inside Microsoft called the Natural Language Group for like seven years, like for a very, very long time in one place. Yeah. And um, a big reason of that is, you know, A, I was having fun, uh, but, but B, I was a little bit afraid to get out of my comfort zone. I didn't want to take that leap because I didn't know what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, it took me many, many uh, years to kind of get over that fear. My career really started to progress once I started to take on more risks and try to, to think about opportunities that I wanted to have and going to where I could get those opportunities rather than staying in one place and waiting for those opportunities to emerge. So now I, uh, I just tell people, hey, look, like imagine your career is going to be a patchwork of, of opportunities and skills. And don't be afraid to, to leave your current role or your current company if you know that like there's a, a next skill or next opportunity that you want to have. You should piece together your career um, into kind of a beautiful uh, patchwork rather than expecting to get everything that you might want out of your career in one spot. Because it's so rare that you get the, the product, the, 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 the people and mentorship, the, the pay, like all that stuff in one spot is a very, very rare thing to happen. But there's so many opportunities, particularly in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, if you're willing to take on uh, new roles and, and move to different places. You know, part of this might just me, be me rebelling against having worked in one place for so long. But I do think that, you know, there is something unique about the Bay Area in that, like, there's so many opportunities so many places to work and there's always kind of an implicit safety net no matter how much risk you're you think you're taking on yeah you can always uh, fall back on you know if one if one particular part of the industry is down there's probably another one that's up if social media is down you can go uh into data analytics or ai or, or any of those kinds of things Cer yeah. certainly doable in other places but it, there is such a high concentration there yeah you know yeah. If I, if, uh, I remember first week I was in the Bay Area, I got approached to work at a, a everything from Bitmoji to dogs to planetary satellite monitoring. <laughs> There's no, no shortage of stuff going on here. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I think, you know, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, Nick, so great to have you on. I appreciate all the insight into your career and, and the great advice there for people who are looking for uh, a similar path to you. Thank you again. Awesome. Thanks, Grant. Thank you.